Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Work Rundown, where we give you the rundown on the issues that matter most to Black women in the workplace. We're your hosts, Jody and Shaq. Hey, Shaq, how you doing? Hey, Jody. I am here. <laughs> I'm breathing. You're breathing. You're corrupting. Yeah, I hope. Uh, <laughs> none of us know these days. Um, we don't. We so, don't. yeah, I hope so. Um, I'm refreshed. I washed and did my own hair. So I okay. feel, you know, new and refreshed. So, how are you feeling? I am doing pretty good. I am, you know, the highlight of quarantine for me is always Instagram concerts and battles. Yes. So I'm looking forward to the battle between gospel singers Hezekiah Walker and John P. Key tonight. Okay. And and I want to be extra black. So I have black eyed peas soaking. Now I've never cooked black eyed peas, <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna embrace and sum up my inner my inner old Southern Black woman. Maybe you should find a quick recipe. Yeah, that's the plan. But the first the first step was to soak them. So I got that down pat. So yeah, so that's what's going on with me. You know, just, you know, just hanging. Hanging, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just jump right in. Tell us about your work, your um, your lunchtime read for today. So today's lunchtime read is an oldie but goodie that I'm sure you remember. Mm -hmm. It's a book called The Little Black Book of Success, Law (gasps) and Leadership for Black Oh, what a surprise. Yes, yes. Yes. All the way back. All the way back. We met them. We got signature books. We got autographs. Yes. I am looking at my autograph copy. I need to pull out my book right now. Me too, girl. Me too. Here you go. Yes. Wait a minute. So this book is written by Elaine Merrill Brown, Marsha Haygood, and Rhonda Joy McLean. And it just celebrated its uh, 10th year of publication. And Shaq and I actually went to the book launch 10 years ago. And and I actually photocopied, we would photocopy chapters for each other out of this book. Like that's just how important this book is. So it has 40 short chapters um, and each chapter presents a different law or principle to help Black women succeed in the workplace. Each chapter also ends with a set of mama-isms. So basically those sayings and lessons we all learned from our mamas or grandmamas or aunties back in the day, they actually list the ones that are relevant for each uh, subject. So some of my favorite chapters are always consider yourself a VIP. Don't be the office mammy. Yes. Yes. I remember you used to tell me that when I used to take my extra work. Yes. (laughs) Everyone comes to Shaq because she's so helpful. And I'll be like, Shaq, don't be the office mammy. This is what the little black book says. Yes. (laughs) So, yes. And and the chapters are short enough where you get like photocopy chapters. Mm -hmm. Um, Another, one of my other favorite chapters was Aretha was right, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yes. Another favorite is the values you were raised with in church aren't always valued in business. And another favorite of mine is bring your brand to the table, blends into the crowd while still being yourself. So, yes, 
I definitely, we both highly recommend. Yes, we do. And we're going to go back and and reread, refresh. Uh, But I definitely still find myself referring to lessons uh, I, you know, got in this in this book. So check it out. Get you get you a Kindle copy. Check it out. Yes, great read. Yeah. Since we can't get out and get to the bookstore, you know. Cop on Kindle, cop on Kindle. Uh, so yeah, that's our lunchtime read for today. The little what a fabulous one! Thank yes. you, Jody. Thank you. Yes. Today's episode is called "Don't Call It a Comeback: Lessons on Reinventing Ourselves." We have a special guest today, Nicole Shawan Jr., who is a black queer and justice-involved counter-storyteller. Her writing appears in Lambda Literary's anthology Emerge. Cura, a literary magazine of arts and action, Gay Mag, Roxanne Gay's medium platform, Zora, The Feminist Wire, Color Block, For Harriet, and more. An alumna of both the Breadloaf Writers Conference and Hurston Wright Foundation's Writers Week, Nicole has received literary residencies and fellowships from various arts organizations and institutions, including Hedgebrook, the New York Foundation for the Arts, Ten House Summer Workshop, Lambda Literary, and Sundress Academy for the Arts. Nicole's completing her manuscript in progress, Cracked Concrete, a memoir of crackheads, cousins, and crime. She's the creator of both the Roots, Wounds, Words Writing Workshop and Counterpulse, a Brooklyn-based reading series that censors the narratives of queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, people of color, storytellers, Learn more about Nicole at www.nicoleshawanjr.com. Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Hey, I'm so excited to be in um, this space with you both. And we are excited. Thank you. To, we're excited to have you. Yes, very excited. Yes. Yeah. You know, for, for our listeners, the first time I met Nicole was at the Renegade Reading Series. Yep. She was reading from... Um, one of her essays, and I was just blown away. Just, it was an experience. To hear Nicole read is an experience. So I was like, you know, we got to be friends. We got to be cool. (laughs) (laughs) So Nicole, one of the things that really inspires me about you and that I noticed right away um, is that you write and speak freely about so many aspects of yourself, even the hard stuff, the stuff that makes you want to cry. So, you know, you've written about, you know, being a stripper as a teenager and developing your swag and confidence. You've talked about becoming an attorney and prosecuting police officers. And you've even written about, you know, pleading guilty to a felony. So I wanted to ask you, why do you think it's so important to own your story? And how did you get to that point? That's a great question. Um, So I have, I think for um, the better part of the past decade, I have been um, trying to live a life without shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that um, through just kind of my own spiritual evolution, um, recognizing that everything that we've been through in our life has been purposeful. It is a part of our journey for a reason. We are all given the set of experiences that we're given so that we can grow and evolve as spiritual beings, right? Who just so happen to be in physical flesh um, containers right now. Um, And so 
having embraced that, right? Like everything I've gone through, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything that we all go through um, mm-hmm. is purposeful and will lead to, leads us to where we are now, right? But will also lead to where we are in the future, um, here and in the after physical life. Um, I think just recognizing that, you know, I know that I'm supposed to be going through these things to learn from them. And if I have to learn from them, I'm sure that other folks would, would gain some type of empowerment or insight to their own lives if I share what's been um, a part of my journey. So I guess to answer your question, I think it's important for us to to live out loud and to not feel shame um, in our human experience because it's all really intentional, right? Um, and it all does lead, I think, to a individual but also collective healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when you share your truths and your story, it gives other people the permission to also live their own truth. Authentically. That's right. That's mm-hmm. that's the word. Yeah. So that I mean, that is so important. Thank you. Um, how, so how has living out loud and owning your story, how has it affected the trajectory of your life? Yeah, um, I think that I've been able to practice radical self-forgiveness and compassion because I'm living out loud and I've essentially banished the shame. It also has helped me to understand my own complexities as well as the complexities of people around me, those who are strangers and those who are familiars, right? So that I can be compassionate with them and empathetic with them um, and see people for the good rather than be... be, I think because of my past traumas, I was always... I was shaped to looking for the gotcha, gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Looking for yeah. oh, what's the wrong, what's the negative in this person? Like, what is what is this person trying to get me for? And now right. that I've kind of like understood my own shit and um, embraced that, you know, I can be like, oh, everyone has their shit, right? Absolutely. And, and really build yeah. community, like authentic community, not just kind of like, hey, girl, but like, y'all, I really want to see you as a complex mm-hmm. individual. That is so profound. Practicing radical self-love and forgiveness. Yeah, that is. So, um, Nicole, uh, when sharing your story, you spoke about sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of Black women, especially we don't address or share these stories of sexual and physical trauma, especially from our childhood. We kind of suppress these things. And sometimes we even forget about them. Yep. But then, like, we, in that same sense, we develop issues along the way throughout life. And sometimes it takes us a long time to realize these issues are from our uh, past trauma. So I want to thank you for sharing that story um, and, uh, and for Harriet, um, the story about men rape mm-hmm. us and you let them. Mm-hmm. So how did telling, telling your story help you? regarding growth and change? Um, So that one right there, um, that was a different experience for me. That was, I wrote that, I think back in 2017, right before I got indicted. And um, Mm -hmm. I wrote that when the Me Too movement was like really burgeoning. um, And I was so pissed that this um, narrative or that this movement that was created for um, Black, Indigenous, women of color had been hijacked, essentially, um, for lack of a better word, by white, wealthy 
women, right? Um, And so in that, I was like, nah, like, first, you know, like, that's some bullshit. Um, And that is reduced to a hashtag is also some bullshit. And let's really, like, talk Mm -hmm. about this. And it was the first time when I had confronted the fact that I was raped at around 11 years old by my friend's father. And I changed the names. um, It's funny. I changed the names in that essay. I originally wrote the essay with the real names and then I spoke to someone and they were like, oh, mm-hmm. well, do you think this might be an issue? And I was like, oh, again, further shaming, further fear. Let me switch the names. Mm-hmm. You know, had yeah. I written that as a more mature writer um, and as someone who is really like doing the healing work, I definitely would have included the right name. So my friend's name was Mike and his father's name was also Mike. So that it shouldn't have been Big Rick. It should have been Big Mike in that in that essay. But um, be that as it may, I think... I look at that essay now and I cringe, not because of the substance of it, but because like mm-hmm. it's that's that writer part of that growing, maturing writer in me that I'm like, oh, I wish I would have done this a different way mm-hmm. to really honor this story. Um, but that writing that essay did a couple of things. It kind of freed me up from that experience for a long time. When I would talk about that experience, I tried to take my power back um, so okay. I wouldn't refer to it as rape. Um you know, I would, I'd completely changed the narrative in my mind. Um, yeah, to giving my 11 year old self agency in that situation. And, oh, Mike was my first. And, you know, it's so dope for an older man to have been that interested in me or sexually desire me. And that's how I, that's how I was able to cope and survive with what actually happened to me. And then finally, that was the first time in writing it that I was like, actually, nah, this is what the fuck happened. And I was powerless. Yeah. Um, And I blamed Mm -hmm. myself for decades, right? Decades. Uh, because yeah. of the story that we tell ourselves, our one another, tell our children about young black girls being fast. Yep. The stories yeah. that I was told by yeah. my parents and my aunts, who they weren't consciously telling me that story, but through various behaviors yeah. that present. Like for example, I remember my aunt Ruby telling me when I was I had to be like maybe six or seven, telling me to change out of a denim skirt because it was too short. And later that night, realizing, she told my mom that there was this white dude on the block, old white man who was like staring at my legs. So like I was the person to be made to feel ashamed or like Mm -hmm. I should change because of someone's pedophilia. Um, As opposed to someone addressing him him. and being like, you know, what the fuck is up with you? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Um, And so we carry, even if it's not intentional, we carry that with us. And that was the first time in 2017 where I actually was able to write it. And because it was the first time um, and I wasn't dealing, I was in therapy at the time. um, The way it was written to me was just, it was still too hot. Mm. As a writer, I wish I would have had, I wish I would have given myself the time to cool off to really be objective and write it, give it the honor that it deserved both in terms of craft and substance. Mm-hmm. But you know, one of, I mean, one of the things I really appreciated about that piece is because it was so raw, the mm-hmm. reader could feel you struggling with whether or not it was rape and whether you had done something wrong. And so it yeah. just brought up so many interesting questions about yeah. how in rape culture, you know, we try to, be wishy-washy about what consent is. No, you were a baby. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A baby. He, and, he took advantage. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. He took advantage yeah. of your, your youth 
and your childhood. And Jody and I, we were just talking about this. We all knew those type of men around the way yep. that used to do that, like hollering at the young girls. And and when you look back, you think about we all look like kids. I don't remember nobody really, even if you were developed, you know, we all looked yep. young. And you could tell that. We and I was a son's friend, so there not, was no ambiguity around that. Yeah, no question. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it it's crazy. It's sad. Um, yeah. And like calling those men out now. Like, yeah. It, and you, I, I feel like sharing that story, you you did like it. people that read it, uh, like, you know, it might have opened a mother's eyes to call those men out. And I talk about my mother all the time on this podcast. She used to call those men out when those men would try to talk to me. She would be like, yeah, she would curse them out and go off. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother, she would, uh, she had a long metal pole (laughs) and she would chase their asses around. She would go Mm. to the house. She would tell them to stay away from me. Mm -hmm. And and the, and the, the even more horrible thing about it is not only do we all know men like this, but they are supported. They have they have accomplices. You know, when you yep. talk about one of the men, I think his name is Bill. Will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and it's how people like R. Kelly get away with doing what mm-hmm. they do because everybody knows that they're they're raping little girls yep. in the hood. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for for sharing that story and for you know giving other people permission to write those same stories mm-hmm. and have those same conversations. Yeah, um, that we don't often have, and you know we often hear the the fast tale girl narrative. Yep. So thank you for receiving yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you about sort of what made you become what made you decide to become a prosecutor because you know in the hood. A lot of black folks get criticized for being a prosecutor because, it, you know, we say the criminal justice system isn't fair. It's rigged against us. You know, even when Kamala Harris was running for president, people criticized her because she was black and had been a prosecutor. So what made you decide to, to become a prosecutor? Yo, words are everything I love. You couldn't have paid me to believe that I would be a prosecutor at any point in my life, right? So I, I had always known that I was going to go to law school. That was something that was really clear since I, from when I was a young kid. Um, mm-hmm. But I wanted to go to law school. Ultimately, as you know, I be, as I grew and I matured um, and developed my own kind of political compass, I knew I wanted to go to law school to be a public defendant. Plain and simple. So um, I went to law school, I had an offer from a public defender's office, um, which ultimately they rescinded because of budgetary issues. And then I was kind of stuck like, oh shit, what what am I going to (laughs) do? You know what I mean? Like, When you're about to graduate, I'm about to graduate and I'm about to take the bar. Like, I need to figure out where I'm going to take the bar now that I know I'm not going to take it in this particular locale um, since I don't have a job Mm -hmm. here. So I decided to return home and take the New York bar. And, you know, I had been essentially unemployed doing like contract attorney work for almost a year. And that work, while it pays a lot, it's not stable. So there would be 
weeks where I wouldn't have any income and there would be other weeks where I was like raking in the dough. And so that lack of stability was Mm -hmm. just on my mental health and just practically speaking, it wasn't working. My mom um, had been a community organizer and a politician, um, or at least a, a striving politician. She had ran, ran for office, and she know, she knew the Brooklyn DA. I grew up in Brooklyn, and so she was like, "Yo, okay. like, I need, you really need this job. Why don't you look at the DA's office?" And at that point, I was like, "Fuck it, I might as well um, interview with them since I am looking, and this would be a good opportunity for me to improve my interviewing skills or whatever." So I went to the interview, a complete asshole, like just like ready to kind of just like show my full ass. And um, the first person that interviewed me was this black dude, Thomas, um, I forget his last name. He was in homicide. He was a homicide ADA and he was from the hood. And he and I kicked it like my interview wasn't even talking about Bessai. You know what I mean? So that was dope. And then Mm -hmm. I skipped the whole second interview process and went straight to the DA. So I get to the DA and I'm like, yo, he's, he, the DA asked me, what do you think prosecutors do? And I bring along the lines of, um, incarcerate poverty born black and brown people, you know, you kept yeah, it because again, I really, I mean, you know what I mean? I was like, I'm going to be who I am. You, uh, you need to know who you're hiring right. if you decide to hire me. And I wasn't even convinced at that time that if they did hire me, that I would even take the job. So mm-hmm. he took a second. He thought about that. And he was like, you know, um, a lot of people think that that's what we, that that's what the prosecutor is supposed to do. And I, he was like, you know, and I guess a, a lot of prosecutorial offices, that is their aim. He was like, um, but here, I think there are way too many prisons and not enough schools, you know, and then he started to go into all of the different, um, the alternative start incarceration programs that Brooklyn had. I hadn't realized that at the time, the one of the, if not the most progressive DA's office uh, where they weren't like, where they were providing other opportunities for people to get treatment rather than to go to jail, right? And so when okay. he started to break wow. that down, I said, okay, well, this is something that I think I could rock with. So they hired me. And even then, you know, he was like, well, what would you, you know, if you were here, what would you want to do? DA's offices, especially in big um, metropolises like New York, they are broken down into different units. You could prosecute drugs, you can prosecute gangs, you could prosecute guns, right? Um, and so he asked me, I said, well, I can't do drugs. I have, you know, my father was an addict. Um, my parents in general suffer from substance abuse. Um, most of my family, especially on my dad's side, suffer from substance abuse. I have my own political views regarding substance abuse and how addiction shouldn't be criminalized. So I said, you know, I can't do anything right. regarding drugs or gangs or any of that bullshit. I said, but if I have a victim on my case, I can actually do that. So I requested to either be uh, prosecuting sex crimes, rapes and forcible touches, mm-hmm. sexual um, crimes, and um, or domestic So the DA put me into domestic violence. And um, yeah, that's how I was able to do it because I actually had a person who was affected by crime, right? But for that, I don't think I would have been able to do that. And uh, for me, being a prosecutor, you know, a lot of people in my family even would ask me that. Um, and I would tell them, listen, especially after I practiced for about a year or so, like, yo, it's the prosecutor who is the person with the power in the courtroom. And that's okay. Uh, it's not the defense attorney. It's not the judge. It is the prosecutor. When we make a recommendation... The judge um, has has the discretion to reject it, but if the judge accepts the plea offer that we make, to stay within that confine, 
those confines. You know what I'm saying? Um, more often, yeah. moreover, defense can't go and tell the judge, you know, this is this is this is what we're able to offer. Nah, it's the prosecutor saying this is the offer. Bottom line, take it or leave it, or we're going to trial. Um, and also, the prosecutor is the only person in the courtroom, according to the ethics, the rule, the ethics rules, that. It's our job to ensure justice for everybody, not just the victim, everybody, right? Including the defendant. When you hold that kind of power, you know, it makes sense to me just based on man, why a lot of prosecutors are deplorable, right? Which is why you need prosecutors who come from the hood, prosecutors who are of color, prosecutors who are poverty-born, who actually have lived um, under the systemic oppression of most defendants to be there to ensure that not only is the survivor of the crime getting the justice that they deserve, but also the defendant. As as much as I can empathize with my with my victim, that's what we refer to um, victims of violence in the DA's office. I hate to like reduce people to victims. I, I don't believe in that. I'm mm-hmm. just using the colloquialisms of um, criminal law. As much as I empathize okay. with the victims, I empathize with defendants because I understand how systemic mm-hmm. oppression has led many defendants to suffer traumas um, that have caused them mm-hmm. to enact crimes. Right. And, you know, that is a perspective that that you don't often hear from yeah. from prosecutors. You know, they're usually just saying we're tough on crime. We're going to put the bad guys away. But you very you very rarely hear people say, listen, you need to look at all of the parties because they all suffer under the same oppressive systems to just even end up in the criminal justice fact. system. Yeah. Yeah. So you definitely had your own perspective, your own mission, you know, driven mm-hmm. by, um, you know, your own background. Um, one of the things that I thought was so interesting to learn is you mentioned in one of your essays that your first felony case yep. was a, yep. a rape case, a statutory rape case for a 14 mm-hmm. year old girl. So yep. that had to be really satisfying to to kind of go ahead with that mission, given your own experiences? No, it wasn't. Um, No, it wasn't. I definitely, listen, I believe nothing is a coincidence, you know? And so I know that I was brought into her life and she was brought into my life for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, When we first tried that case, the, um, the jury deadlocked. Um, and when, you know, after you have a trial, you know, sometimes the judge will allow you, the prosecutor and defense attorney to go in and speak with the jury to see kind of what their thoughts were. And so the jurors don't have to stay with you if they want to stick around and tell you they did stick around. I mean, some of the things that came out of their mouth was just the shit you would expect, you know, like, you know, she had to be, she had accountability. She had agency in this. Um, I don't, I, I don't. At 14. And even though this is a statutory crime, yeah. right? So all of that shit doesn't matter. Like, all you need to know is that this is her birth certificate and this is his. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, case closed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in a, in a society that um, hates women um, and embraces rape culture, and I'm not just saying men, women also yeah. embrace rape culture in the most progressive places like Brooklyn, New York. Um yeah, that, it actually wasn't, it, it wasn't a great experience at all. And the trauma of testifying in the courtroom for, for her, I'm trying to like not say her name. Um, it really put me into a position of, of, of deciding I can't put her through a retrial. 
Um, and so we pled it out for something that I think wow. was a gift to the defendant. Okay. Mm-hmm. To the defendant. Yeah, because I mean, that is, that is also the trauma that you go through a trial, you go through cross-examination and then having mm-hmm. to relive this um, is not is not easy. And those are the kinds of concessions, you know, prosecutors yep. have to make every day. Nicole, um, have you ever, have you, like, through your career as a prosecutor, have you met anyone else with similar perspectives as you? Not many. I'm curious. I can count on one hand. Mm-hmm. And none and none who were, wow. uh, and if this is me being honest, like, even if that was their mm-hmm. underlying politic, they weren't vocal about mm-hmm. it to the office. So they weren't helpful in change throughout the office, right? They were able to effectuate change on their own individual cases, on their particular caseload. Um, but I was, I was, yeah, I was, um, I was pretty rogue. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that, but again, that's the power of of owning your story and yeah. just owning your perspective because you can't make change mm-hmm. in a place of silence and yeah. being afraid. That's a fact. Um, which is what a lot of people are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, what made you decide to become a writer and storyteller? How did that? Jody, I've always been a storyteller. I've all listen since I could remember back in the day when I was a kid, and you know, in my family, I'm sure many other Black families, if not most, um, you know, for holidays we come together and eat. But usually after mm-hmm. we ate, or even before, the kids would kind of put on recitals, right, for ev- all the guests. You know, you know what I'm talking, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my cousins would be like dancing (laughs) to Michael Jackson and shit, or singing, or you know, doing some type of step Uh performance. And I was always the person who was like, "Oh, I want to read you the story I wrote." (laughs) You know what I mean? That was my shit. And so, um, yeah, I had that, but you know, I stopped. I didn't. I always looked at writing as being a hobby because I just didn't think that it was something that you could actually like make a living off of and actually sustain yourself financially. Um, I didn't think that was for us. I thought like, white people could do that, but not black people. And you know what I'm saying? And so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I practiced law because I thought it was the more responsible thing to do. It wasn't until, so I'm going to take y'all on this ride with me real quick. And, in two, <laughs> in 2014, um, I had this ill, I had a dream where, um, I was in a, I was going, let me back up. I was going through like a really hard breakup and finding it really hard to kind of like function and sleep. Um, and I was just really depressed and distraught over it. On this particular night, I like closed my eyes and I'm in this dreamland where I'm in the middle of an ocean and I knew it was the ocean because it wasn't nothing in sight, nothing. It's me and water. The sun is bright. The water is calm. So I wasn't anxious or nervous in any way, but I did take note like, oh, you are just by yourself in the ocean. In front of me, this dude comes up out of the, um, out of the water. He had dreadlocks. He was a brown-skinned brother, um, lean but muscular. And he said a few things to me um, that I remembered. So... He goes away. Next part of my dream, I'm taking a bath in my apartment's bathtub. And then I wake up. 
So this dream has such an impact on me that I started to Google like the significance of what he said to me in the dream, as well as like shaman. I'm like shaman saying this, shaman that. Nothing is like Google is giving me yeah. nada. So the so let's say a few months go by. I'm telling every friend who will listen to me. I'm telling him about this dream. That's how impactful it was. Finally, one of my homies was like, "Yo, that was Yamaya." So I said, "Who?" They go on to tell me who Yamaya is, an African deity um, in Yoruba um, um, religious practice, and so. Uh, and that's just like the really short version of it. Anyway, so I said, but yo, Yamaya is like a woman. This I'm telling you, this was a dude. Like I saw his chest. He didn't have anything on his back. I'm telling you. So I'm still I'm looking into Yoruba and I start looking into Yamaya. I tell somebody else about the dream a couple of months later. They also say Yamaya. Tell somebody else about the dream. They finally say, that's not Yamaya. That's a local so I said, who? Now I've done all this reading. I've done bought all these books. Yeah. I'm very clear on who Yamaya right. is. I've heard <laughs> nothing, read nothing about Olokun. So they start to tell me why Yamaya is the deity that kind of governs the ocean, the top of the ocean. Olokun governs the deep ocean where man has never gone alive. But our ancestors, particularly during the transatlantic slave trade, the Middle Passage, those who mm-hmm. were tossed over, those who jumped, that's where they landed in Olokun's realm. Olokun is the deity that governs like subconscious and like your inner, deepest innermost thoughts, as well as like an abundance of wealth. If you think about it, there's an abundance of wealth at the bottom of the ocean that we just don't even know about, right? So I start looking into Olokun and I say, okay, I'm learning more about this Yoruban religion. One thing leads to another. And I recall that my aunt Gail practices Yoruba. Mind you, I haven't Yoruba is. You know what I'm saying? Like, I grew up, my mom's side is Catholic, <laughs> my dad's side is Baptist. That's what I'm, all my, nothing else. That's it. So, <laughs> I'm like, oh, Aunt Gail is, is practices Yoruba. I think my dad might have told me, as a matter of fact, I'm telling him about the dream and all the information that my friends are giving me. So, he's like, yo, call your Aunt Gail, who ain't, a, who ain't an aunt, but she a friend of the family since before I was even, so, Auntie, Auntie Gail. Okay. I hit Aunt Gail up and she's like, oh yeah, that was a Olokun. I don't even tell her that, that that's the latest information I have. She knows from the dream, like that's Olokun. You need to contact your cousin Trevor because he's a Yoruban priest and his wife is a priestess. I call Trevor. Trevor's like, yo, oh. come through. I'll give you a reading. Where you live, bro? He says, I live in Massachusetts in this uh, area near Amherst. I said, funny enough, because I have a gig there this weekend. Boom. We meet that weekend. During uh-huh. the reading that he gives me, one of the things that comes up is that I need to be writing. Another thing that comes up is that bad luck is going to hit. So I see him and his wife looking at each other when the bad luck thing comes up. And I'm like, oh, shit, like, I need to take this seriously. This is 2014. Fast forward, 2017. Right. <laughs> um, I'm in a writing workshop with Vanessa Martier, writing our lives. And in mm-hmm. this workshop, we talking about um, uh, African religion. And Vanessa looks dead at me. She was probably five feet away from me. And Vanessa says, but you don't worry. A Baba Lao is coming to you. A Baba Lao is a priest in Yoruban religion. So in my mind, I'm like, why is Vanessa telling me this? But I don't push it. We in the middle of a writing workshop. Say, Vanessa, why did you tell me that a Baba Lao is coming to me? This is before class starts. And she says, oh, what? She said, "Um, I don't know any Baba Lao, sis. So now I'm like, 
what the fuck? Because she has no recollection of telling me this shit, right? right. Like, <laughs> I swear to you, not even a week later, I get an email from someone in her class who was like, by the way, my Babalao is coming. My godfather is actually what he said. My godfather is coming um, to New York. If you want a reading, I'm happy to pass along the information. So, of course, I, I'm like, yeah, I need the reading, right? Because Vanessa then told me that Babalao was coming to yes. me. Oh, I get the reading. I, I um, organize the reading, schedule it. I scheduled the reading for December 13th of 2017. This is a couple of weeks before finding out that I've been indicted. My arraignment is scheduled for December 12th. My arraignment was happening in Cleveland. I fly out to Cleveland. I get, I get wow. you know, booked. Um, I get bailed out. I get arraigned. And um, I fly back home to New York the next day, December 13th. I'm touching down at JFK or, or, um, or LaGuardia, I can't remember. And I'm just like, obviously distraught, depressed, unstable. And so I'm like, fuck, I got this reading tonight. But I'm still knowing I have to go because of every everything is telling me you got to go to this shit. But I don't have it in me. I get home, I'm like thinking about like, oh, just fucking drive to the Bronx to get this reading. I hear a boom. Somebody done crashed into my fucking car. And I swear, I had to thought, I was like, girl, somebody just crashed into your car. I leave my house. Sure enough, someone hit my car. So cool. I hit the bobble out. I can't come tonight. We reschedule. I go. One of the things, and this is an hour and a half reading that I have with this, this man. What comes up in the reading? You need to be writing. But you knew that already. <laughs> he doesn't know my cousin. He doesn't know my cousin's wife, the priestess, right? He doesn't know my aunt, Gail. There's no reason for him to tell me the same thing that my cousin Trevor, the priest, and his wife told me. So at that point, I was like, all right, you've been, you you took a writing workshop with Nicole Dennis Ben a few years back. You took this writing workshop with Vanessa Martia because you enjoy writing. This is clearly your purpose. Two different priests have told you this. This mm-hmm. is clearly your purpose. So that was the journey. How many priests does it How take? many priests does it take? <laughs> right? Sorry, but that was, yeah. that was really the abbreviated version of it. Like it sh- the shit gets even wilder than that. But that's that was the journey to writing. Wow. Talking about divine intervention. Look, you you weren't heating the sign. That's so a fact. Listen. Oh, you oh you didn't understand? Exactly. Oh, so like, you're gonna shut all this shit down. Right. What happens when you can't practice law no more? Let me tell what you what you gonna do. Man. What you are you gonna right. listen now? Because you, you know, a, a hard head makes a soft ass. What you right. gonna do? Right. Because even the bad luck that you, and you yeah. should be writing like that at that too, moment. Like, I should have been like, you know what? Because I always was a, I hated my job. I was miserable. After the yeah. first two years, I was miserable. Mm-hmm. My aunt said to me, my aunt Monica said, because I was complaining. Every really? I hate my job. My aunt said, well, what would you be doing then? She said to me, she like, stop complaining. I was like, I'd be, I'd be writing. I hadn't written one fucking paragraph of creative anything, but I just knew like it was so quick. Yeah. I'd be writing. Yeah. 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 So that, that, it sounds like, yeah, you took it, you took the signs and you mm-hmm. it helped you reinvent yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a part of reinventing yourself. Yeah. And um, so the changes, the changes in your life, how have the changes in your life helped to develop you? Yo, I feel like once you accept purpose and just like fully submit to it, right? No mm-hmm. matter how broke you are, mm-hmm. no matter that you, it's, the future is uncertain and you can't see it. 
Once you submit to purpose, everything starts to fall in place. So I was scared about, okay, well, I'm broke now. I don't have a job. I can't practice. Um, This is all I've ever trained to do. What are my skill sets? But opportunities started to just open. Okay, who cares that you broke, right? You got into this writing workshop. You get into that one. People are giving you scholarships. I'm developing craft, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, man, I just think, I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah. You did. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. One of the things we, we also wanted to ask you about is, I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways, just watching you, it seems like your life has kind of come full circle. So you started out as a prosecutor, but now you're, you're, you've got a piece coming out with Cura pretty soon. And I think you also did some work with, was it the yep. Department of Probation where you gave writing workshops? So I'll take you Tell back first. Before that. I was a prosecutor, I was a teacher. I have a master's from Pace University School of Education. I taught as a lead educator at New York City's public schools, right? So yeah, like it has come full circle. If you're talking about the Department of Probation, I teach um, writing workshops for them for folks who are currently on probation in in Brooklyn. Um, And I'm pulling from my experience as an educator to do that, right? I'm pulling from my experience as a felon who served out a sentence of felony probation to do that, right? Um, I'm also writing this memoir. Uh, My memoir is the central theme of my memoir is crime, you know, because I've experienced crime from every angle that you experience it, you know, from being a criminal to being a survivor of crime, right? To being someone who sent people to prison for crime. Um, So using those experiences in order to get this memoir out there to show how it is possible that you can go from being poverty born to being like, you know, a a high ranking and well-respected prosecutor to being a criminal, Um, how that thread isn't inconsistent in any way. Um, Yeah, so I do think, and I don't even think the the circle is completed, Jody. At this juncture of the journey, Mm -hmm. yeah. It feels like there are many things that are completed, but there's much more to be completed, which I think a part of the purpose and everyone's purpose is to figure out why we are here, but also to share those gifts with community in order to build community up. And so I know I there's not a scintilla of doubt in me that all of the experience that I've gone through, hence banishing the shame, I have to use to help other people whether it's through telling their stories or even accepting that their stories are valuable in their own growth, but also in the collective growth. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the Thank things, you. Nicole, that you do so well is creating community from whether it's sharing someone's work or, you know, curating workshops and reading series. Mm-hmm. You do such a great job of, of creating community. And I feel like, because of what you're doing now, you you have a opportunity to have a wider impact than when you were a prosecutor. So you're you're just you're just moving into your purpose more fully. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that you call yourself a counter storyteller. You are a counter storyteller. Tell us why. Yeah, I, you know, a counter storyteller. Someone who recognized that we've been conditioned by a dominant narrative. That's bullshit. That's false. Right. Um, that's a spectacle. And so my my aim is to um, is to to question 
the dominant narrative, but more than question it, really to dismantle it um, by showing that, like, you know, we, I think oftentimes Black folks, people of color, like, we are so caricatured, even in our own work, if if I'm being completely honest. And so I think when you have folks who are actually doing the work of being, of showing the complexities of our humanity, that is counter-storytelling, right? Um, When showing the multidimensionality of who we are as individuals and as a collective, that is counter-storytelling. been told to us have been conditioned to keep us in this mind state of oppression and victimhood, even if we don't know it. So to counter those stories pulls us into positions of power and ownership and agency. Absolutely. Yeah. Reclaiming. And not only that, but actually reclaiming our our lives. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like not just the story of the life, but the humanity itself. Mm -hmm. Itself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have, and we talked about this briefly, but you've written about your father's yep. addiction to crack cocaine. Um, in the in the essay, No One Survives the Smoke, which made me cry. <laughs> I emailed, I text Shaq, and I was like, Shaq, I'm sitting on my couch crying. But you talk about your father's addiction. You talk about, you know, where you're going to tell him about your own criminal case. And your father seems to have provided some really good lessons on rebuilding your life. Can you tell us about some of the things he's taught you about rebuilding? It's funny because, you yourself? know, my dad has a hard time accepting that he's a superhero to me. Um, he just doesn't see himself in that way, you know, and hasn't gotten to that place of, of self-forgiveness and radical self-love. But, um, yeah, man, you know, when that was... Being indicted, um, especially as public as it was, um, and after having lived a life where I try, like I, I like, you know, listen, whatever, um, tried to be a good person and tried to follow the rules and do everything that folks would say do in order to be successful. Um, that experience of being indicted, criminal justice system, was the hardest experience that I've had to live to date, and. My, my mother definitely helped me. Like, she was the rock in helping me get through that. My father was the wisdom wow. in helping me get through that. My father, mm. oh, wow. in being so transparent in his pain and experiences of being a crack-addicted person um, and how hard that was for him to lose everything, including his mother, while he was in the throes of that addiction, yet was able to build a life of love. That was the message that really kept me from killing myself, to be true, if I can be like really honest with you. Um, so yeah, he definitely, wow. yeah, my dad is definitely like caping. Like he has that cape. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Listen, all super, not Word. all superheroes wear cat capes. Go dad. Yeah. Awesome. That is awesome. You are, I think you are so accomplished. You've, you've, education wise, writing wise, you've written so many things. Can you tell me about your thoughts on being hard on yourself and holding yourself accountable for your goals? Um, I really do. Um, (laughs) When I try to force some shit in my mind when I first started Mm -hmm. it, um, I think we have to give ourselves the grace yeah. and the time 
to let spirit talk through us. Um, Because that's really what's happening when we're creating. I think we're foolish to think, oh, this is me. I'm this good. I'm dope. Like, no. Spirit is communicating. Like, we are like on, you tap into a different frequency when you allow yourself to sit with your work, Um, which is why I tell all of my storytellers who I teach, yo, when we are going into writing, it shouldn't be because I need to publish this for this publication or I need to get this done for that, this, that, the third. It really should be because spirit has compelled us to tell this story. After we are confident that we have written the story in a way that spirit intended, that's when we can start thinking about, okay, is there going to be a wider audience and what that wider audience should be? And if you are coming to it from that pure place of, I'm just going to get the story right according to spirit, then that stuff about time and being hard on yourself, that shit goes Mm -hmm. away because that's, it's inconsequential. It does nothing but really like provide hit. Just sit with the piece for us. Sometimes a piece will take three hours and be like, just beautifully rendered exactly what it needed to be. And sometimes it may take 12 months, you know, for an essay. Um, Sometimes it takes 10 years for that memoir. Sometimes it takes two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just just doing the work. Absolutely. I like that. Um, So finally, uh, so this, uh, so there's so many, there are black women there or just women out there, out here that are experiencing downfalls in their careers, relationships, fitness goals, um, just in general. We're feeling defeated. They they may feel defeated and they may want to give up. Um, they're like, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm going to be. You know, this is my life and I'm just going to deal with it. What would you stop operating out of fear? These women in this moment. Yeah, I think so often mm, we operate as a word, we operate yes, in a place of scarcity, exactly. right? I don't have enough. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough mm-hmm. education. I don't have enough talent, whatever it is. Um, I think once we start to operate from a place of abundance and courage, um, all of that shit kind of goes aside. You know what I mean? Um it's okay to be human. Really, we all are human. And so doubt is going to creep in. Um, That negative self-talk is going to creep in. But don't be centered in that place. Be centered in the place of abundance, right? Hold space for it. Sit with it. Ask yourself, why is this a story I'm telling that my therapist, um, my couple's therapist has recently said, like, you know, what's the story you're telling yourself? Like, ask yourself, why am I telling myself the story? And like, honor that. Um, by giving it its time and space, but move back into that place of abundance, move back into that place of courage. Wow. Thank you. We're over here taking notes. Yes. Oh. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so quiet because I'm trying to write stuff down real quick. Stop operating out of fear. <laughs> yeah. Nicole, you can add life coach to your, your list of I appreciate uh, you. And- <laughs> yes jobs okay look i'm i want to do research you like i'm i want to do research on some things i'm writing stuff down i appreciate y'all too seriously thank you so much for having me Um, i love the work rundown i I think i texted you about it jody or maybe i emailed you like yo this shit is popping keep it keep doing it keep going word thank you Thank you. Thank you for joining us and for just being so inspiring um, yes, and very. sharing your, your stories because you really do give, inspire us and give us courage. 
um, yes. to be our best selves. So are are you going to read something for us? You, got something, something <laughs> you know what? It's, it's funny. I know you wanted me to read something. Um, it's hard to kind of gauge what I want to read, um, especially in this moment. So what I would do is I would just say folks should go to my website. And if they want, if they want to read something, read it there. Um, or is that, do you feel like I am you both Shaq, Jody, tell me what you, you're thinking. Oh, there's so many good things there. Yeah, there, there are so many good essays. So yeah, and we'll we'll include your website in the show notes, and yes. and we're gonna be tweeting out our favorite. I appreciate y'all, and thank you for just doing so, this um yeah. this healing work for community. Yes. yes. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So thank I, you, Anna, and later. we will talk to you soon, Nicole. So Shaq, what work fit tips do you have for us today? Well, I have a bunch for us today. Uh-huh. Um, so I found an article on Essence.com. Um, it's uh, titled Eight Self-Care Projects to Work on During Quarantine. Uh, since there's eight, I'm only going to name four to, <laughs> for time's sake. And you can check out the rest on the website. Uh, we'll put the link. Uh, we'll provide you with the link. So uh, the four that I'm going to read, the first one is cleanse your body. Uh, It says a healthy body, a healthy mind. So now's the time for a cleanse if you haven't already. Juice cleansing allows you to shift your mind and body away from eating harmful foods, processed foods, and unnaturally sweet beverages to drinking the natural water in your produce. So get to juicing. Uh, I do that now. I juice celery in the morning uh, and it makes me feel good. I juice um, apples. I always make different concoctions. Uh, I I like to juice ginger also too. It's an anti-inflammation, so it's good for you. Uh, The second one is upgrade your home. And I think Jody and I both have been doing this. Yeah. (laughs) Since It says, since many of us will be at home for the foreseeable future, it only makes sense to upgrade your house to reflect the wellness sanctuary that you've been dreaming about. And that's what we've been doing. We both ordered plants. Yeah. I I ordered an orchid. And what did you get, Chet? I ordered a plant. It's a lily. It, It sprouts lilies, but it's a pretty green plant and it has it has good fresh air qualities. That's what I know about Mm -hmm. it. It's a florid plant and it's coming next week. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. And I've been like looking for um, other little things to order to um, make my apartment more comfortable since, yeah, since I'm home, I'm working from home. Uh, I think that's a great um, thing to do while you're here in quarantine. also, uh, the next one I uh, saw that stood out is spring cleaning. Uh, the one thing that this quarantine aligns with is spring cleaning. Not only will organizing and decluttering make you feel better, but it's also great for your mental health. And it definitely is. Um, I clean like every, like I try to clean between every week and every other week. I do like a, a bleach cleaning. I wipe stuff down throughout the week, but a good deep cleaning I do in my apartment, especially, you know, because I'm stepping out to get groceries. It's good. And I have really bad allergies, so I like to dust a lot. So I think a spring cleaning is good. And going through your old stuff and kind of taking it out. 
um, and, you know, seeing what you want to donate for when we can go back outside. <laughs> uh, I think that would be good. And, and yes, yeah, good for mental health. Um, and I feel like I started something in my building because I feel like whenever I clean, other people in the building clean because um, <laughs> when I go out in the hallway, I smell bleach like coming from apartments. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, are they the is definitely like obsessed with bleach. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! But I don't drink it. I just clean with it. <laughs> you don't. You don't put it in your nostrils and inject it into yourself. No, no, I don't do that. I'm not that obsessed. I'm just obsessed with like bleaching surfaces down. And the next thing, which I always seem to push on our show, is workouts. So doing a virtual workout, move your body not only. Uh, for the sake of moving your body, but also because it makes you feel good afterwards. Exercising releases endorphins that boost your mood and reduce your overall stress. We're all stressed. So, you know, uh, maybe a 10, 15 minute exercise, 30, 40 minutes. I try to get between 30 and 45 minutes in at least five days a week. It it makes me feel really good. And I think it'll make you feel good too. Um, doing that in virtual ones. There's so many different virtual workouts right now from like the different gyms, from on Instagram. You can find a good workout anywhere these days. That's true. Uh, so that's what I have uh, for the work fit tips. Thank you, Essence, for um, yes, uh, self-care. Yeah. Yeah, they are. So yeah, thank you for those self-care projects to work on. And I hope you work on them. Yeah. So uh, Jody, tell us about today's fancy quote. So today's fancy quote is inspired by our brilliant and fabulous guest, Nicole Shawan Jr. Yes. And it is from the song Ladies First by Queen Latifah. Mm Mm-hmm. Who said that the ladies couldn't make it? You must be blind. If you don't believe, well, here, listen to this rhyme. Ladies first, there's no time to rehearse. I'm divine and my mind expands throughout the universe. Queen Latifah, ladies first. Hold up. Wait a minute. Did I hit sense a little rapping in there, Jody? Ew. I can <laughs> multitudes. I can multitudes. Clearly you do. Like, I should have, we should have added a beat to that because that would have been like, Yes, you do. Yes, your reading is so eloquent and you just added a little attitude, a little rap to it. It's that Mm -hmm. that Brooklyn. It's that that Brooklyn. (laughs) Yes, you got it. That was a good one. Yes. So thank you to our guest, Nicole, for joining us today. We'll include her website in the show notes. Um, Thank you all for listening. Hit us up on Instagram or on Twitter at The Work Rundown, or you can send us an email at theworkrundown at gmail.com. If you have questions, comments, suggestions for future shows, or if you just want to say, hey, girl, hey. And last but not least, make sure you leave us a review. Sharing is caring, people. Until next time, thank you, everyone, and be safe. Thank you, and don't let the work run you down. Bye. Bye.